Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager. Robert, when did you first encounter the work of H.R. Giger? You must have been adolescent, younger. Oh, man. It would have been when I saw the Alien movies, or okay. at least began to to pick up on their existence. Uh, and, and I don't remember in, in what order I saw them. I think I might have actually seen Aliens first, like, on TV yeah, before I, moving I'm on to Alien. almost positive that was the same experience I had, mm-hmm. was I saw Aliens before I saw Alien, but probably saw both before I was like, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old. Mm -hmm. But like, uh, I also always thought of him as that guy, like you would go to the mall and there would be like precursors to hot topic where like they, they (laughs) would have like t-shirts or posters and stuff with HR Giger's art on them. And that was just something I always thought of like kind of industrial kids loved that stuff. There would be like these big HR Giger kind of, uh, tapestries that you could like huh. get for your room or something like that. The other big memory I have of of, uh, of learning about Giger is that I would go to bookstores a lot, especially with my dad. And, yeah. and he would he would go to the history section and look around and I'd really get into looking at uh, at horror books and sci-fi and fantasy. And then I'd also check out the the art and photography section. And there was all sorts of weird and interesting things to discover there, yeah. uh, including Giger. You'd end up picking up a, you know, a copy. I don't remember if they had a copy of 
I, I feel like a Barnes and Noble in Huntsville, Alabama, had a copy of Necronomicon, wow. which was is one of his books that was just filled with all of these these designs that would lead to aliens. Yeah. But they're so surreal there and uh and and engage all of this uh this these these obscene and uh and, and beautiful and alien themes in them yeah. um and if, as a as a young kid you're looking at it and you just don't even know what to think about it no absolutely i uh was looking over the notes before we came in here and i realized that when i first saw his artwork it made me feel like it was something I wasn't supposed to be looking at. It made me feel shameful because <laughs> I was a kid and it was probably that point in my life where it was like, like if you saw like another person naked, you were like, Oh, I'm terrible. I'm a uh-huh. bad person, you know, like, uh, and Giger's art felt like that somehow. Maybe that's uniquely American. I wonder if like the Swiss culture that he came from had that same kind of puritanical uptightness about nudity. Well, I, I think based on some of the material we looked at here for this episode that, that you saw a split there. There were those that, that were certainly more, uh, you know, uh, buttoned down and then those yeah. who understand what he was going for. But I, I also remember in college, uh, getting on the internet for the first time and discovering a lot of these, these, especially fantasy and sci-fi artists. Yeah. And Giger really stands out from the lot of them because a lot of the stuff I was, I was getting into, it was still basically, uh, you know, like beautiful princess, beautiful wizard, beautiful barbarian people, yeah. and then monsters. But, but Giger's stuff was the beauty and the monstrosity all smeared together. Yeah. Um, it was challenging, you know, there were, there were certain images that were, that were less challenging than others, but because there's certainly deep Giger out there, there's certain works that you really have to, to puzzle over to figure out how you feel about them. Yeah. Um, but well, yeah, I always felt like his work was was certainly more more challenging and maybe maybe in a sense more, you know, artistically um, relevant than uh, yeah. a lot of the stuff that it's often grouped with. It's funny you use that term challenging because I think like I obviously was aware of aliens and alien, but I don't think I knew that he was a person who did these things until like the Dead Kennedys used his artwork for their album Frankenchrist. Oh yes. And that was like a big incident where I mean this is the like late 80s early 90s in general but just mm-hmm. Jello Biafra constantly getting into trouble and like going in and uh, I think that he had to go to trial over the artwork because it's essentially this is probably a good point for us to say like this might not be the safest of episodes to listen to with your kids. But uh this artwork is just a series of of orifices and phalluses, mm-hmm. like filling one another. Right. And, and, that, and there's a lot of that in his work, but this is an example where it's far more explicit. And I think, uh, uh, I think Biafra originally brought it up almost as a joke, like, well, this should yeah. be our album cover. And yeah. then it, the joke kind of spiraled out of control. Yeah. And then, uh, we, so w- we're going to, get to the point pretty soon here on who H.R. Giger is and everything, but one of the things that we researched for this episode was this documentary that came out recently called Dark Star. It's on Netflix mm-hmm. right now. It's all about him sort of in the, the waning years of his life. And his wife, I want to say, there's a point where she's talking about the Frankenchrist album cover, and she said that that her Im- impression was that the people who wanted it banned thought it was a photo. They yeah. didn't realize it was a painting, and she was like, "How would you possibly arrange all of these people's bodies to be able to pull this off? Like, if you've seen this this thing, it would just be it would be impossible." 
It would be like the weirdest game of Twister you've ever played. Giga Twister. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh right. yeah, and we should probably before we before we get into it too, we should also say both Robert and I are fans of uh Super Ego's version, comedy version of HR Giger, which is done by Matt Gorley, so we may occasionally uh slip into that. If you like Giger and you've never heard of it, I totally recommend it. Super Ego's a comedy podcast, a couple years old now, but that was like one of their running bits was Matt Gorley doing HR geeker as if he had to interact with with very mundane daily <laughs> events like like what's it like if he goes through mcdonald's drive through or what's it like when he has to sign paperwork for his kid to go on a field trip and we'll include uh, some links to the videos uh, related to this uh, on the, the landing page for this episode at stuff to blow your mind.com so obviously we're talking about hr geeker today but but i just want to reiterate why we're talking about geeker and i, I basically it comes down to this We've pretty much all seen Alien or Aliens, or we've seen the imagery from it. Uh, we're, we're at least all familiar surface level with Giger's work, and it's so popular, and it's been so popular and mainstream for so long. Yeah. And I say mainstream and just mainstream awareness. Now, obviously, there are different levels of appreciation for Giger. But I, th- I think it's easy in the midst of all of this, um, th- this mainstream presence to forget to lose track of or even not appreciate like what the man was about what his work was about and what sort of of legacy it has especially as we as we move on through the 21st century and look back at the 20th century look at this this century uh that Giger and his work emerged from yeah this is going to sound pretentious but I going over these notes and reading up on the real deep psychological look at his work and and what it means and what it kind of brings out in people who come to it. I can't imagine another artist right now who is as transgressive as Giger was, but was simultaneously evoking the themes of the of the modern age Mm -hmm. you know like he was really capturing themes of the moment but at the same time presenting them in such a way that they seemed like like i said things you shouldn't be looking at um i don't know i'd love to hear from the audience if there's somebody out there that i'm just unaware of that's like this outsider artist that's totally doing that but giger I, maybe it's just because it's our generation, too. Giger really captured that for me. Yeah, I, I like that you mentioned outsider artists because uh, something that, that definitely um, came up in the research and comes up in watching that documentary, Dark Star, is that Giger is kind of in a class all his own because he started off, uh, you know, in, is, is uh, you know very much like a, a localized artist, and then he starts getting uh, some success shipping posters off to New York, yeah. having some success as a poster um, artist. But still, he's he's very much small time, and then he just skyrockets to the top via his involvement yeah. in Alien. Alien. Yeah, and so he never is. So he was he kind of was a was an outsider to the entire art scene for a very long time, really until the last few decades of his life, because he had kind of skipped over it, you know, yeah. like, like a like a rock skimming across the water. So he was he was not quite an, an, an artist artist, and he was mainstream, but also very challenging and difficult for a lot of people. He also had certain uh, you know outsider artist sensibilities, especially in the yeah. documentary when you see his backyard. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, it reminds you of some of these you know classic examples of say southern outsider artists who are just creating stuff because they have to, yeah. and uh, and and they're maybe not uh, as interested in, in in how it 
matches up to uh, you know artistic sensibilities at all. It, this is going to be the second time in like two weeks that I've mentioned this podcast on the show, but it reminded me of S Town. So without spoiling S Town, the main sort of focus, the protagonist, I guess, the character piece that S Town the podcast is is an artist in a way who lives kind of in the middle of nowhere and constructs these crazy things in his basement and in his backyard, very similar to Giger. Um, and there's, there's a, there's a question in S town of whether or not the like, uh, chemicals that he was exposed to over the time that he was working on his projects may have affected his mental health. And it was something I absolutely thought of about Giger as we were watching this. And then, did you put it in the notes or did somebody else mention it to us that there's some thought that because he spent so much time in enclosed spaces doing airbrushing that he might have inhaled a lot of chemicals? I have heard that, but I couldn't find any th- official source that um, that backed that up. So, yeah, I don't yeah. Know. but he did. He lived in this wonderland uh, and. It's, if you haven't seen Dark Star, it's fascinating. Let, let's just put it that way. But this episode is really going to be us. We're going to, if you've never heard of Giger before, we're going to spend a little bit of time just walking you through like who this guy was, how his life played out. And then we're going to do a dive into the, the sort of psychological academic look at his work and how it represents the human experience. Before we move on, I'm going to read a quick quote from Timothy Leary uh, from his intro to Giger's Alien, which is a book of of his artwork that he created, who's commissioned to create for, for Alien, as well as his thoughts on the filmmaking process. Leary says, and here's my best Leary voice in doing this, Visionaries like Giger overstand too much. They overlook, they oversee, they overstate, they overthrill. They physically frighten dutiful hive members and often become nauseous or screamingly panicked by the simple exposure to the tissue fact and cellular fabric of life. Giger, we bless you for taking us back down to meet and coil and intertwine with our old Darwinian relatives. That was pretty good. It sounded a little bit like Carl Sagan to me though, too. Yeah, which well, is another guy that Matt Sagan is a little more Kermity. Oh, That's okay. <laughs> if, you do, if you try and do a Kermit the Frog, do a bad Kermit the Frog voice, you may you usually land on Carl yeah. Sagan. <laughs> yeah, I'm, so this is another thing that, that came to mind as we were doing the research for this is Again, like all of these sort of outsider thinkers and artists that you and I grew up with that influenced the people who influenced us, they're all gone now. Mm-hmm. Giger's dead. Leary's dead. Mobius. Mobius. Yes. Yeah, th- mm-hmm. Like when I was thinking about all the people who worked on Alien behind the scenes, Mobius, um, Dan O'Bannon, just the, the people who really like came to it and like imagined that movie into existence through sheer willpower of uh, decisions by committee mm-hmm. you know like they're almost all gone except for Ridley Scott and you and know he's still going strong well than yeah ever. I mean one he of the reasons we're doing this episode is Alien Day is the week that we're releasing it and then like two weeks after that Alien Covenant's going to come out directed by Ridley Scott he's still cranking out these xenomorph movies and mm-hmm. we're still watching them uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, huh? Yeah. And, and I, again, like I kind of step back and I wonder and I go like, who are the people today who are really like the, the really gonzo weird thinkers that are influencing kids out there? Hmm. Well, for those of you listening, uh, maybe some of you are not as familiar with Giger's work, and I'm just going to attempt to briefly describe his work, to sum it up in one quick statement, an entire man's life work here. Uh, but essentially, 
most of his work was it, it boiled down to surre- surrealistic biomechanical realms in which humanoid entities shift in and out of an alien landscape, a place of cold flesh where birth, sex, and death intermingle and are at once one. And his f- most famous works are in airbrush, but he later uh, abandoned this for pastels and ink. Yeah, I he worked in so many different kinds of media. He was a sculptor as well. But I think of him mainly as a painter. And one of the astonishing things I learned about him from watching this Dark, Dark Star documentary was that he didn't do any underdrawings. He would just sit down at the canvas with an airbrush and go. And some people might go, well, yeah, I mean, look at his stuff. It's so abstract and surreal. Of course, the, he could get away with that. But, like, there is an anatomical precision to his work even if he's exaggerating like how long an arm should be or like the the way teeth are formed in a mouth he's thinking about actual anatomy and then exaggerating it and it's it, it and he's doing all of this improvisationally it's it's fascinating to think about that just as like a process uh and then outside of you know the obvious sex death details. Geeker as a painter had this amazing ability to translate texture in whatever medium he was working in. And that really impresses me too. Like imagine what it would be like to reach into one of his paintings and touch (laughs) one of the monstrosities. What would it, what would it be like to pet the head of a xenomorph? Uh, I would say wet, cold and ribbed. That's what, that's the general idea I get from most of the texture. Like I can't, I can't decide if the texture would be like hard or brittle or gooey or, you know, it's just, it's all those things simultaneously. And you're getting that from, I mean, that's a three-dimensional, you know, image captured on film, but from his two-dimensional images, you're getting the same thing. I mean, he really, one of the things that I think is great about his work is he really captured uh, reflection of light. Most everybody knows his artwork as just being like, oh, it's just a lot of dark things and a lot of like phalluses, you know, uh, going into things. But all of that darkness like captured these like, you know, unseen beams of light on his canvas and then reflected them back. Yeah. And I feel like these are these are details that uh, for a lot of us are kind of lost on us when we look, especially we don't have an artistic background. You just kind of become lost in what he has created and not so much the the mastery involved in bringing it to life. Yeah. Uh, in that documentary, there's scenes where you, you get to see him more or less starting from scratch, yeah. using the airbrush to create something. And it's it's amazing just how uh, you don't think of an airbrush as a precision instrument. Not at all. And like this, this is what I think of when I think of the airbrush. When you go to the beach and you get those like custom made T-shirts, oh, yeah. like that's what I think of as airbrush art. And then you look at what Giger did with an airbrush and it's just this amazingly precise detail Mm -hmm. for a a tool that's really, I mean, it's just spitting ink out and paint, you know? Okay. Why don't we uh, get into just sort of how this guy was made, (laughs) like, (laughs) like, like how he was born into the world, how the world gave us HR Giger. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. 
Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch stratacoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back. So Hans Rudolf Giger, a.k.a. Hans Rudy, to his friends. Um, let's talk about, yeah, where he came from and uh, and how he became uh, uh, the, 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 the icon. So he was born on February 5th in 1940 in Chur, Switzerland. I'm not sure if that's 
the right pronunciation. His full name is Hans Rudy Giger. The joke in those super ego videos is that his his real name is Hey Really Giger, <laughs> but but it was Hans Rudy, and everybody in the, in his life, you know, close by, they just refer to him as Hans Rudy all the time. Nobody called him Giger like we do here in the West. We're just like Giger. That's the only way we can describe this guy. Um, yeah, he's just this fascinating character. Yeah, so he he had a loving mother. Uh, who was very close with the, the, all her life. Uh, his father was, by all accounts, a bit distant. He was a pharmacist. And uh, according to Stanislav Grof, uh, a, a psychiatrist and Giger author who we'll get into uh, later, uh, Giger's father was, was strict, a little distant, uh, but, he, but he only ever struck Giger once. This, crazy, this story is crazy. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't want to to go into it in, in too much detail, but essentially uh, Hans Rudy, the young Hans Rudy, was, was stealing power cables from uh, a street construction project, and he was trying to, to burn the cables down in the cellar of his parents' house to get, to get lead for making bullets. And then the smoke uh, ended up uh, rising up, and it uh, polluted and destroyed most of his uh, a, a lot of the stuff in his farm in the pharmacy. Everything was black and sticky and oily, and they had to spend a fair amount of money getting everything cleaned up. And so um, <laughs> that was it was a very tense moment. But it his uh, dad was pretty upset about that one. Yeah. Uh, and then tell the story about him with the skull. Oh yeah, so little he, little kid with a skull. Yeah, his father gave him a human skull when he was a small boy, and I guess you know this is kind of the the, the pharmacist uh, 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 reference coming into play here. Yeah. So Giger has said in interviews that he was he was kind of terrified by this because here's death in your hands. Yeah. So he tied a string to it and he would drag it through the streets like it was a you know some sort of a, a toy boat or something. Yeah. And then he he built a ghost train in his backyard to scare and to delight neighborhood kids. And then he would he would later build a, another ghost train in his backyard as a, as an old man. Yeah, and and so all of these seem to be attempts uh, of a child to conquer his fear of death or things that scared him, like like tunnels or uh, asphyxiating enclosures, things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, something I didn't know about him, about his childhood, as a kid, his uncle Otto taught him how to make homemade weapons through, <laughs> through lead casting and working with wood and other metals. And uh, there was also an antique dealer that lived in this same town, and that guy taught him how to handle these weapons and also provided him with, like, a bunch of weapons for his personal collection. So this little kid <laughs> is... Hand making like blades and knives and stuff like, of course, he like becomes this guy who goes on to design, you know, the <laughs> xenomorph. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. But then he goes on to get an education. Yeah. So uh, his father, his, well, his mother was just, you know, completely supportive of everything he did his whole life. There are these wonderful pictures of of him, uh, a younger Giger and his, his his elderly mother and she's she's wearing black as well attending a showing of his work and so she just, you know, kind of embraced it no matter, you know, how weird uh, the work actually was. It'd be pretty great if she like put corpse paint on and went to his, <laughs> his bar. Uh, but but his father, you know, again, far more sensible and uh, he said, alright, you need to study industrial design and architecture and so he did at the, the School for Applied Arts in Zurich. Yeah, and he also attended military college to learn to be a mortar gunner. So this guy has, like, 
this trace background in his younger years of like really dealing with weaponry. And my understanding was like once he went to that military college, like his fascination with guns completely disappeared. Hmm. Um, this is the school, though, uh, where he first started doing his ink drawings that later became uh, titled Adam Kinder. A lot of people have seen these and maybe didn't know this was the name or Atomic Children is how it translates into English. And they represented his ideas about nuclear war and the mutating effects that it would have on humanity. Uh, before he graduated, he also became super interested in Freud, which we're going to talk about a lot. Uh, and he started keeping a dream journal that he used as a resource for years to come. He would just mine this for ideas for all of his creations. So he graduates from school. He goes on to work for Andreas Christen, designing office furniture for the Knoll International Company. Uh, and he, during this time, he had his first solo gallery exhi- exhibition. This was like a year after he graduated school. Uh, so it's 1968, and a friend persuades him and says, look, give up that job making office furniture. Just commit fully to art. And immediately afterward, he got his first gig creating monster effects for a short Swiss film. Now, an important part of his biography here is uh, his relationship with uh, Lee Tobler. So she was his partner for many years. She was his first great love, a muse for so many of his depictions of the feminine form. But they had kind of a uh, tempestuous uh, relationship, allegedly involving, you know, an alchemy of both individuals, as these things, uh, you know, tend to. Because he was a young, determined artist with a a fanatical devotion to his craft. uh, And he also recognized no boundaries in his work, obviously. Uh, But she was a a young woman with a uh, traditional Catholic upbringing, but she was immersed in this world of permissive exploration. She suffered from depression, and she attempted uh, suicide uh, once. And then uh, Giger was was deeply affected by this. But while his his, his art, such as his famous um, Lee Too and Lilith, they served as an outlet for him after this, uh, but it didn't work for her. Uh, there's a moment uh, in the documentary where Giger reflects on this, and it's it's rather poignant because he says, you know, he was not able to help her with his art. Uh, and you, you really see the... In a, here's a guy who's, who always turned to art. Like art was the thing that, yeah. that made his life possible. And, and that's how he explored his fears and his anxieties. Often we are unable to help someone that, that is in need of, of, of serious professional help for their problems. Uh, but, but he felt kind of, I think kind of trapped that he, that he, and, and, and felt terrible that he could not help her with the the one tool that that he really knew how to use. Yeah, he struck me as the kind of guy who like was able to sort of self-care through his own art, but he didn't know how to help other people. Yeah. And so he would try to help them with his art and they were like that's that's not what I need. That works for you, you know. Uh and so yeah, I mean when you look uh, at the body of work that was inspired by this woman, you can see her features in so many of his paintings. Mm-hmm. There's this series of um, photos of her where she's topless and he's airbrush painting parts of her body so that she's got this kind of biomechanoid appearance. Yeah. Uh, and I believe that even like that artwork ended up being part of a show that they did to memorialize her. Yeah, because in 76, uh, she she did commit suicide, and that was a, a, a major um, traumatic event in his life. Yeah, and he described it as a terrible emptiness. Uh, he and his friends threw a memorial for her that was called the Second Celebration of the Four, and then what I have seen, you know, titled under this are these various photos that were taken from this session with her where she's covered in this 
uh, biomechanoid makeup, kind of kind of like what we think of today as body paint, but he, I think he was using yeah. different techniques. Um, and then his friend Friedrich Kuhn also died in 1973. So the early 70s were just filled with tragedy for this guy. Uh, and then he gets to work on Alejandro Jodorowsky's Dune, the ill-fated Dune movie yes. that never was made. Yeah, and for... And for- Extensive details on that. Definitely check out the documentary that came out about this this grand but doomed project that uh, that you know ultimately, even though it didn't come to fruition, it ended up fueling so many other projects, yeah. uh, including Alien. It's really the main bridge for Giger to Alien uh, because he was paired with Dan O'Bannon, uh, Mobius, aka Jean uh, Garrard, and uh, Chris Foss, who did spaceship designs and also uh, did the Joy of Sex illustrations yeah. for the classic Joy of Sex. And I think Ron Cobb also worked on both of them. I'm not sure. Ron Cobb yes, was he an did. illustrator. He, he on... did some pro- the preliminary work on just like the egg design. I yeah, believe. that guy's uh, work is great. Like he, uh, one thing that I didn't learn until I was uh, working at a library here in Atlanta that had like this great special collections archive was Ron Cobb was actually like an underground zine artist for a long time, like Mm -hmm. writing for these civil rights zines. Uh, And he did these like he would basically do like little like one shot panel uh, comedy things like the kind of things that you'd see in like the New Yorker nowadays. But Mm -hmm. they were like intensely detailed. That guy was pretty fascinating as well. And yeah, so just before Alien comes out, he publishes this book. It's his big art book, Necronomicon, in 1977. And it's seen by Dan O'Bannon, who had previously worked with him on Alien, or sorry, on Dune. And then Dan O'Bannon shows it to Ridley Scott, and they look at it and they go, this has got to be the inspiration for this the creature that we're going to have in this film. Specifically, the painting Necronom 4 is the main inspiration for the xenomorph. So all of you out there who have you've, you've totally seen a xenomorph, <laughs> even if you've never watched any of the alien movies, you know what they look like. This is where it originates from, this one guy's like weird obsessions. All right, so this leads us to Alien, and uh, you know I think everyone is familiar with this with this film. Uh, but uh, he was brought on uh, uh, to design a number of key elements. Uh, so an ancient temple exterior, an interior temple, spore pods, Alien first phase, Alien second phase, Alien third phase, and uh, you know the, so far this sounds like. A, a lot of art, artist Hollywood um, relationships, right? Brings him on and do some conceptual designs for the film. Mm-hmm. Well, but Giger was was far more demanding than that, and he he insisted on a a rather large fee. He was arguing that his designs would be the star of the film, uh, and you know, it, and at the time, you can say I think even his lawyer was like, "You got to calm down, Giger. You can't ask for too much money. You're you're just doing designs for a monster and some sets." Uh, but he was like, "No, no, this is going to be the star." And and really, you know, not to discount uh, Sigourney Weaver's iconic performance or the or the whole host of fabulous character actors that that helped bring that that movie to light. Yeah, but. He wasn't completely wrong. Like his, no. his designs are are front and center. It to is that film. everlasting. I mean, think about how many movies have been made from that franchise and are still being made. Uh, not to mention all of the spinoff work. Like, there's hundreds of comics that yeah. are done all because of like the gravitas of that design com- combined with this sort of like very interesting 
sexual horror sci-fi tale that Dan O'Bannon and the other writers put down. Yeah, everything was just the the, the synergy of his artistic uh, vision and the plot. It all came together perfectly. And, and Geeker put a tremendous amount of work into this. I mean, not only oh, yeah. the, the, the initial designs for the film, which alone were pretty pretty large task for any artist, uh, but also into just the physical construction of costumes and sets. And this entailed just constant changes and improvements, some at the behest of Ridley Scott or just the necessities of shooting, others fueled by his own perfectionism. Plus, as everything was uh, was pretty much caked in goo for these shoots, uh, the colors would leach out, and he, it was this would require him to repaint everything each night so that it would be fresh and, and look exactly as Giger thought it should look and uh, as uh, as the filmmakers thought it should appear. Yeah, if you've ever seen any of the like special behind-the-scenes extras for Alien, uh, I have the quadrilogy set, and I've watched uh, almost all of that stuff, if not all of it. Um, yeah, Geeker's just like constantly there in the workshop, either like tinkering around with the alien costume and and painting it, or I mean, he, he like I th- I want to say the scene with the space jockey chamber, he hand painted that with an airbrush mm. all by himself. Yeah, and those were enormous sets. Huge. I mean, yeah. it's easy to lose sight of it as awesome as the, 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 the set looks. Like it was really, they really constructed this cathedral out of the man's artwork. Mm-hmm. And uh, Giger would later acknowledge his fussiness on the set and apologize for being a, a bit difficult. Uh, and he attributes much of this to just not understanding the demands and uh, and often improvisational aspects of film production. Like one example of this is that Ridley Scott decided that, hey, they, we can just use the underside of the derelict ship set uh, and repurpose it as a corridor in the ship. And this sort of thing which drove Giger crazy at the time because it, it felt cheap and rushed to him, using his work in ways that were not intended. But again, this is this is often what happens when you're making a film. Like the the director saying, "All right, we need to we need to shoot this. What do we have? Let's uh, let's just tilt yeah. this a different way." Uh, That's let's, one of let's Ridley Scott's like again. known uh, best talents too. Is like, yeah, he makes these like huge budget films, but he really figures out how to make them in like a really. Um, quick production fashion. Like he's noted for setting up cameras at multiple angles for each shoot. So he doesn't have to like constantly be shooting the same scene over and over and over again. And then, yeah, on that set, like they were doing everything they could to repurpose things and make it look like something else. Like they used mirrors in a lot of places so Uh that it looked like the corridors were longer than they were. And Scott actually got them to double the budget for that film solely based on storyboards that he drew himself. So like you think about it, like going into it, they had like a $4 million budget, which sounds like a lot. And then he himself drew some stuff and showed it to them. This is even before Giger's involved. And they went, this sounds a lot cooler than we thought. Here's another 4 million. So they've got $8 million to make this movie. And it, it looks still to this day. It looks astonishing. Now, one of the questions that you have to ask is what what would Alien have been like if Giger had not been there? If we had not had Giger's designs, mm. and it's it's difficult to say, but you can consider a few things. You consider the the uh, the, the ball monster in you uh, know in O'Bannon and John Carpenter's Dark Star, yeah, which is a great film, but it has a really ridiculous looking alien. Yeah, and that was one of the main reasons why Dan O'Bannon wanted to write this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he felt like like that movie just didn't capture the, the what he had in his head for oh, Alien. Yeah. yeah. Uh you can also consider that like Ridley Scott's one of his original ideas that they were testing was well, let's just take an adult, we'll strap a bunch of children to him and then we'll cover him in rubber to make uh to, and that would make a good effect. Uh 
So we can imagine what if that had taken off. You can say, well, Mobius was on board. What if Mobius had done the design? And certainly mm. Mobius drew lots of cool aliens uh, in his time and even did some production work, I think, on uh, uh, designing aliens from time to time. Wayne Barlow was around at the time. It's You might say, well, what if Wayne Barlow had been brought on? But yeah. none of these – it's hard to imagine any of these guys – like creating something that would have been on par with Giger's designs. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is like, not meant to be a pun, but there's nothing quite as alien as the xenomorph design. Yeah. It perfectly captures the idea of something that is other than us from somewhere else. But that unfortunately comes out of us. And, you know, the script is perfect for Giger because it really ties into all of his themes of birth and sex and death. Yeah, because and that's something to keep in mind here is we 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 briefly, you know, roll through some of his uh, his later works. And one of the things is that no matter how awesome his design work was, it just didn't it tended to not really jive with the overall picture, with the overall project uh, that that was utilizing his vision. Okay, let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about his work after Alien, and then we're going to really get into the psychological sort of matrices of uh, H.R. Giger's world. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, 
personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. All right, we're back. So post-Alien, Giger kind of just has... In, in a sense, he's got it made. Yeah. You know, he can basically devote his life to his work now. Now, that's not saying it was definitely made in the shade, based on the, the documentary and the uh, uh, some of the uh, uh, the accounts that his wife gave. Giger was the kind of person who, when money came in, he would he would spend it on his art. He would buy yeah. some sort of cool supply or a bone and start creating with it. And it was it was kind of. Uh, you know, it was kind of paycheck to paycheck to a, in a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it, one of the stories that, like, his assistant came into the house one day and there was a, like, rotting lion carcass? Uh, an ibex. Or, no, there was an ibex in the bathtub. Right. There was a lion carcass uh, by the doorstep. Because he needed the lion's spine for one of the pieces that he did. I think it was that that furniture piece. It's like a big chair. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he was buying dead lions. Yeah, now you mentioned the furniture. Uh, we already mentioned some of the furniture designs that he, that he did. Uh, you added in here that he made uh, Harkonnen furniture based on his Dune designs. Yeah, I, I don't know like if this was just specialty stuff. I don't think there was like a line that you could buy. I mm-hmm. think these were these were pieces that he you know made individually, and then yeah, he made so many album covers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Debbie Harry record, the Dead Kennedys one I mentioned. Uh, Oh yeah, we were talking about this over email. Uh, he was heavily involved with, uh, Celtic Frost and then subsequently Trypticon because that lead guy, Thomas Gabriel Fisher, was his assistant. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, any Danzig fans out there probably remember Danzig 3, How the Gods Kill, that uses, uh, one of, uh, one of Giger's, uh, uh, creations there on the front. And then this one, I didn't know about this, that he did an Emerson, Lake, and Palmer cover. Oh, God. Um, yeah, brain salad surgery. Cool. Uh, it, it seems like he kind of said yes to anyone who would sort of get his vision out there, yeah. even if it didn't necessarily jive with the... I don't know. This is me looking at Geeker's art and trying to figure out what what I would pair with it. And right. that's not necessarily what another person would, or even Geeker himself. So He made his own film, although I haven't really been able to track it down, The Mystery of Sin... Guitar dough. Hmm, yeah, I've I've not seen this. And then he was heavily involved in a video game that came out in the nineties called Dark Seed. Yeah, I read a review of this that says that it was is a game, it was pretty bad. Like it, yeah. it made the worst choices in puzzle games of the time. Okay. So it was kinda like mist or something like that? Yeah. Less you know, I I guess less graphically advanced. Okay. But that being said, one thing that everybody tends to say is like the, the the look of the the game was great it really made wonderful use of of Giger's art okay he also contributed to a number of different film projects uh there's a a movie that came out in 89 Tokyo the Last War and there's a, like a big wheel creature that's kind of based on his designs <laughs> um he also was a creative consultant on the 1996 German horror comedy Killer Condom <laughs> 
I've he, never heard of that until now. <laughs> it's uh, uh, I think I saw a trailer for it once. Maybe if we do a Maybe trailer, we talk, should do we trailer should talk. Yeah. Uh, he also did poster art for Future Kill, which is a 1985 comedy horror film about mutants hunting frat boys in a futuristic city. It stars two actors from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, including Marilyn Burns, and huh. it's a it's total USA up all night material, oh, yeah. 80s trash cinema. It's thoroughly ungeeker, yeah. but uh, it's it's still kind of the trailer's still kind of awesome. And then there's the infamous stories from Poltergeist Two. Oh yeah, he did a, several different designs and really made that the best moment in Poltergeist Two possible, where um, Coach, aka Dad from Poltergeist, he vomits, and the vomit like is this thing that quickly grows into this like limbless humanoid creature that scuttles off uh, after making this horrifying face at him. And it's yeah. a you can find YouTube clips of this. It's a it's a wonderful scene. And then of course there's species. Which oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> is an interesting project to to look at. He designed the female alien Sill, mm-hmm. as well as this ghost train for a dream dream sequence. And the sequence was going to be cut. They were you know, Giger was telling them, "Look, we have to have this ghost train in the film." And uh, and they were like, "No, no, no. We the budget is shrunk. We we don't have time." So Giger eventually he just contributes a hundred thousand dollars of his own money just to 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 film this scene, and then forces them to to put it in, like, or convinces them to put it in. Yeah, and uh, it's an and it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting scene, but uh, the film itself was uh, I believe it was a it, it was a success at the box office. And I mean, they've made like five or six of these, right? It must yeah. have been successful. Yeah, I, I think it was financially successful, but I don't think Species is anyone's favorite film, and right. um, and it, you know it's it's a shame because uh, this was the only chance we really had to see one, one of Giger's feminine creations come to life on the screen. So I kind of hold out hope that maybe somebody will reboot Species down the, ro- down the road and do it right, or if, if not Syl, then some other biomechanical female will crawl up out of his work and into a movie. What was that movie that came out a couple years ago? I never got a chance to see this, but it was very similar to Species, and it had... Uh, my wife jokingly called it like the Bjork baby. Uh, the, these Sarah Polly's in it, and like uh, there's so it's very similar plot, and like their genetic engineering splice, splice. That's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That seems like the closest thing to like re envisioning species that I've seen so far. Yeah, and then uh, there was also that movie with Scarlett Johansson that I've seen. I've seen compared to it, Ghost in the Shell. No, <laughs> uh, the one where she plays an alien of some sort. And- oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Under the Skin. That's the one. Yeah, yeah that's a great movie. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, you you should really watch that. Okay. You'd love that movie. Now, one of the things, though, with, with all these Giger, the Giger films, uh, my theory is the reason that none of them really quite work and the reason that Alien worked is that Giger's paintings... Uh, and into sculptures, they involve these uh, these strange creatures, but it, they're also a part of this realm. They're a part of this landscape. They're a part of this setting. Yeah. And if you just have uh, Syl, the alien lady, as cool as she looked, if, you, if she's running around the streets of L.A., it's just not going to work. Yeah. Uh, vomit monster crawling across a, a bedroom floor, it's not going to work as well. Whereas Alien, you either had scenes where the, the monster or the or the the creations are within a Giger environment, or they're at least in an inhuman spaceship environment that is a little more in keeping with with Giger's world. And thematically, again, like Alien very much revolved around the same kind of ideas that were spinning out psychologically from Giger's work. I think Species 
tried to do that, but it like mm-hmm. ultimately became like an action adventure film more than any kind of like psychological look at, I mean, it was about birth, sex and death. Sure. But it, I don't know. It, it didn't capture it in the same way. Yeah. Alien did. So, you know, before we go on, we should just say like how things sort of ended up for him. He opened a museum in 1998 in the Chateau Saint Germain part of, uh, Gruyere's Switzerland. Uh, this museum also houses his private collection of other artists work. In 2003, they added a museum bar there that features his interior design. This whole thing looks totally awesome. I, I would love to visit it one day. Uh, and unfortunately he died on May 13th, 2014 after sustaining injuries from a fatal fall. He was survived by his wife, Carmen Maria uh, Giger, and she is the director of the museum. And, and from what we've read, it seems like his wife and his assistants are still continuing his work. And they're running the museum. They're uh, putting on exhibitions. They're working together on getting books published, you know. But he's no longer, obviously, creating new work. Yeah. Now, watching that documentary, though, it makes me wonder how much new stuff is going to emerge. Because mm-hmm. uh, one of the... Uh, one of the the individuals that they're interviewing there, one of one of his assistants or archivists, like he just points to something on a shelf and it's like here's a here's a picture that he uh, drawing that he drew years ago, like no one's ever seen. So yeah. there's no telling how how many curios and wonders uh, are, are are left to uh, to emerge from that that house. Yeah, again, like if you see the documentary, his home is top to bottom covered in his artwork. Mm-hmm. Like it's just filled to the brim. That's one of the things that strikes me as odd. I'm always thrown by artists who surround themselves with their own art. Uh, it feels, I don't know, somehow egotistical to me, but with Giger, it felt right. It's kind of like uh, Aziz Ansari talking about hanging out with Kanye and Kanye's listening to his own music. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah, exactly. The, yeah, that is just always weird to me. Huh. Well, I guess you could say like Giger's a guy who knew what he liked, he knew what he wanted, and he created it on, on the canvas and, yeah. and lived in it. <laughs> so, uh, in terms of living in one's art, though, this is a good time to to break off and start discussing some of the psychological and cultural interpretations of his work. Now, we mentioned Stanislav Grof earlier, a uh, psychiatrist, and he, uh, and he has written about uh, Giger. Uh, there's H.R. Giger and the Zeitgeist of the 20th Century. This is a book available in German and English, The Visionary World of H.R. Giger, and you can find that in PDF form at StanislavGrof.com. Uh, he, and he also shows up in the documentary. Mm-hmm. He was, you see scenes of him working with Giger and the, the rest of the sort of Giger family to decide which illustrations to use in the book. And we're not going to attempt to, uh, to to roll out all of Stanislav Grof's ideas, uh, certainly refer to his work, but I, I thought we might touch on, on the broad strokes here in a few areas that tie in with previous Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussions. Yeah, he especially uh, is really interested in the theory of psychological birth trauma, which I, I I feel like lines up very nicely with Giger's work and also adds a, a layer of scientific understanding to what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. The the idea here, if you're not familiar with it, uh, is it, it runs contrary to uh, older notions of infants as clean slates or uh, or tabula rasa. Uh, rather, the idea here is that that birth itself is the first great physical and psychological trauma for a new human life. We're forcibly ejected from a place of safety and warmth, pushed screaming into a frightening new world. So Groff is really routed in this idea that Giger portrayed the soul of modern humanity. And in in that way, he sees his art as being about technology, human life, ecology, self-destruction, violence, sexual excess, 
mass consumption, drugs, and alienation. And yes, birth trauma is the real big one here because Groff says that powerful memory is what influences everything else. Uh, I think it's worth remembering here, too, that... Giger's work, no matter how surreal it is, it's always surrounded by human anatomy. Uh, and that's replicated on such a perfect level. Like even when he distorts it, like I mentioned earlier, he does it proportionally in such a way that it, it feels real. Hmm. Now, Groff identifies four distinct characteristic experiential patterns, which uh, he co- refers to as basic perinatal matrices or BPMs. And these are the stages of, of trauma. That uh, that an infant, uh, a newborn, goes through according right. to, to this theory. So the first uh, BPM, BPM one, is associated with uh, uh, your existence before birth, uh, before the onset of delivery. Yeah. So the idea here is that, like, while we're in the womb, we experience the world as an amniotic universe. That's Groff's words, uh, and we don't know anything else. And so. When, you know, we're born and we're in the real world, he relates this to regions that have no boundaries or limits. So, for instance, like when you're just floating in the middle of the sea or outer space, these are places that remind us of that womb-like experience. Or a bathtub with Yankee candles burning (laughs) and uh, on your music playing. Perfect, yeah. That was exactly what my womb experience was like. (laughs) So uh, the second uh, BPM, BPM BPM-2, is uh, the cosmic engulfment and no exit or hell. Uh, and this is this is ba- basically contractions taking place. Yeah, so it's based on you know we we think of it more of like from the external perspective of like oh the mother's going through contractions, but you know we experience those contractions while we're in the womb. So this is associated with imagery of archetypal monsters that devour us in some kind of claustrophobic nightmare, very geeker, uh, and it leads to anxiety and a general mistrust that borders on paranoia. So people who suffer from this kind of anxiety. It takes the form of them feeling like they're always caught in a trap. And in Giger's work, we see a lot of imagery of tight headbands and steel rings holding together things by screws and heads and vices and bodies wrapped up in cords and straps. So this is Groff saying like Giger's really capturing that moment. And then we have uh, BPM-3, the death-rebirth struggle. And this is basically when you're pulled through the birth canal. Right. And this is all about that propulsion. After the cervix opens and the head descends into the pelvis, it involves crushing pains and suffocation. And reliving it manifests itself. Again, this is Groff. Not, I'm not saying this. Uh, but that reliving it manifests itself as sadomasochism and deviant sexuality. Uh, it's archetypally portrayed as titanic struggles between light and darkness, as well as raging forces of nature and technology that wields enormous energy. So think of like rockets, bombs, power plants, that kind of thing. He also connects it to the demonic aspect of mental health, and that's something we've been talking about recently on the show, both with our Exorcism Addercism episode and the uh, episode that we recently did on the demon-haunted mind. So potentially there's a connection between this third perinatal matrix idea and those things that we've previously talked about. And then finally we have BPM-4. This is the death-rebirth experience, and this is the actual birth and uh, and the severing of the umbilical cord. So Graf, he characterizes this as this explosive liberation that we feel, followed by an emergence into light. He says this is just a constant reminder of our vulnerability, our inadequacy, and our weakness. 
Now, Groff also notes that it would be hard to see Giger's mother in the same roles that Giger places women in his art, even with all of this sort of uh, application going on here. This convinces Groff even more that these themes come from Giger's primal memories of being born. So, like, uh, you you meet Giger's mother in this documentary, and uh-huh. she seems just like a very kind old Swiss lady, right? Yeah, super supportive of her son. Her son seems to, to, to love her with all his heart. There's not some sort of, at least there's no apparent, like, twisted uh, yeah. understanding of his mother. There's yeah, it doesn't feel like there's um some kind of Freudian impulse that like he wants to have sex with his mother or anything like that, right? Like she's not the uh, image of his sexual sexual adoration. Um, so Groff translates this then into like it's really all about birth and memory for Giger, right? And and he he spends a lot of time just comparing these. These theories, these models, these matrices to Giger's work, pointing out, of course, that at any stage during birth, uh, there's all, often the possibility of, of, of death uh, being present. Yeah. And uh, and so so you see these symbols and elements uh, throughout his work, uh, infants and birth, vaginas and breasts, tunnels and emergence, mouths and gateways, all of it sheathed in a sense of horror and trauma, all of it kind of takes on this necro flesh kind of feeling where it's alive but it's dead it's new but it's old um you know all at the same time there's a lot of category confusion in Giger's work and i think that's that's something we feel when we look at it you know we, we especially some of these larger triptych type pieces where you just go from detail to detail form from form and they're kind of becoming the same form you don't know where one thing ends and one thing begins yeah. and you just kind of set there gritting your teeth yeah, I mean, I'm reluctant sometimes to to apply the word Freudian to something, but Giger's work seems inherently Freudian. I mean, he talked about the, Freud's influence on his work. So much of it was born out of dream journals, and it really revolves around those same themes of birth, sex, and death. Then you add in the merger of biology and mechanics to that. Groff takes into account the strange human nature that translates suffering into sexual excitement, too. So... You know, he asks the question, well, why is sex so linked to our fear of death? And it seems like Giger is exploring that question. That's why he's got this fascination with tunnels and corridors and ghost rides. Groff speculates that it's all related to Giger's memory of his own birth. Remember, this is a guy, we talked about this earlier, just kind of in passing, he built his own ghost ride in his backyard. And I didn't know what this was until I saw the documentary. He literally built like a children's train set that like ran around his backyard but through like these like haunted house tunnels and stuff oh yeah and i think groff's groff's idea here too that he's getting across it's not that the giger has this special background of this special trauma the right. idea is we we all have this strange uh, entrance to a cavern in the back of our mind most of us don't go in there some of us go in there a little bit but giger is uh, is one of those artists who really put on the like the the coal mining helmet yeah. and uh, and and spent his life exploring those tunnels yeah now, this theory of birth trauma itself, it has its roots in, in Freud, who called birth, quote, uh, the first experience of anxiety and thus the source and prototype of anxiety. So Austrian psychoanalyst Otto Rank expanded on this idea in 1924, and later British uh, psychoanalyst Wilfred uh, Bayan also chimed in. So the idea 
is that, again, we're born into trauma. We have this proto-trauma buried inside as primal and potent in our experiences and nurturing afterwards. They help us, they help determine how we're going to bounce back from all of that and how we're going to understand that trauma. So this might be a good point for me to ask a question that I have uh, of you, but also of our audience. I'd be curious to hear what you all think. Do you feel that Giger's work was inherently misogynistic in any way? That's a good question. Uh, I, I was thinking a little bit about this yesterday, and I think one could make a good case for it just based on the portrayal of, of feminine bodies. Yeah. But at the same time, like masculine bodies are are kind of equally treated. Yeah. And I'm talking about his core work here, not some of his sketches. Um, there's such a surrealist quality, and at times it's like the, the feminine body is part of the male body. There's... It, it becomes increasingly hard to iron it down. You know? Yeah, he's just exploring like all of human anatomy. That's sort of how I felt about it, too, until watching the documentary. And then when I saw how he managed his relationships with women throughout mm. his life, it really dawned on me that he had... This, this very strange codependent relationship with his muses, right? So you yeah. had Lee Tobler, and then you had his his first wife, but uh, who is after Lee Tobler, and they interview her in this documentary. She basically says, like, yeah, there's this point where I got, like, super sick. I had to go into the hospital, and Giger came to me and <laughs> was so unsupportive. He was essentially like, look, when you're sick, it drives me crazy, and I can't do my work. And if I can't do my work, it drives me even more crazy. So yeah. uh, I'm just not going to be with you anymore so I can do my work. Yeah, it, he, that was an interesting uh, bit in the documentary, uh, just learning about how he approached his relationships. But at the same yeah. time, he also, uh, I, I, I believe that was the same, uh, that was his first wife because yeah. he didn't marry Lee. Uh, but he ended up like leaving her a house yeah. and everything. Oh, yeah, and they, they seem to have a very cordial life. relationship. Yeah. yeah. But th- there was just something strange about the relationships that he had with these muses throughout his life. And I had not thought of it as being misogynistic. And then I, I kind of wonder if he took these women for granted, maybe. I don't know. Maybe there's more out there on this that I just am unaware of. Oh, I'll probably come back to this uh, as we proceed. But I kept looking at his work and I was thinking, well, a lot of this is... It's not really heteronormative, yeah. but it's more maybe it, you could coin the term heteroabnormative yeah. because it's, yeah. it's very much depending on traditional interactions of male and female anatomy, but but in a way, way that doesn't really line up with any kind of certainly not you know the, the, the classic examples of misogyny or classic examples of uh, of, of heteronormative uh, attitudes. Yeah, yeah, that's true too. Huh. I bet there's somebody out there who's written about this, oh, yeah. but and we just missed missed it when we were doing the research. Um but yeah, Groff is all over all this other stuff, especially uh concerning the birth issues, but also the dreams, right? Yeah, he points out that Giger, uh, we, we touched on this a little bit, he, he engaged in a lot of Freudian dream analysis early on uh, and engaged in a, a high level of self-exploration when it came to, to matters of anxiety and fear. A number of his uh, familiar motifs emerged uh, from this, and some of them are not not as obvious as others. You, if you've looked through a lot of his work, you may have run across safety pins. or mm-hmm. There's a there's a picture of, of Giger. He's made sunglasses that oh, are shaped yeah. like a safety pin. And uh, there's this quote from uh, from Groff's work where Giger's talking about his dreams. And he says, most of the time in those dreams, I was in a large white room with no windows or doors. The only exit was a dark metal opening, which, to make things worse, was partially obstructed by a giant safety pin. So 
that's an, that's such an interesting motif because it's so like clearly personal, and he's not he's not worried with well how are how's how's the the, the viewer uh, or the you know the, the gallery visitor how is the average person going to react to my symbol of the safety pin? Yeah, you no, know, he just jumped in like it was all kind of self exploration. Yeah, that it would all kind of play out on its own in a, a different language that we're not all speaking. Yeah, and and so Groff argues that you know all of this is Giger getting down to the to the root of his fear, following it to birth trauma, uh, and and there are a number of, of anecdotes in there that are that are pretty pretty cool. Talking about him looking back on his upbringing, there's a a wonderful bit where he's talking about overhearing people talking about subterranean passages uh, in uh, in Chur, Switzerland, where he he was born, and so he starts uh, thinking about the the possible tunnel connections to his own basement, mm-hmm. and he has dreams about this and again this gets into you know visions and and uh, you know arguably um, you know uh, proto traumatic memories of uh, of tunnels yeah and that's the thing is like a lot of people see his work and they think oh this is just some like total weirdo freak right but it's ultimately like when you boil down to it he's a scared little boy who like things like being told that there were tunnels under his home or hey here's a human skull my six-year-old kid or whatever like things like that traumatized him so much that he had to process it mentally as an adult through art and it wasn't like he loved what he was creating it was like part of the process for him to get over his own fear yeah well in his own words if i don't if i don't create i i go mad you know yeah so uh at this point let's turn to to one more area of discussion and that uh that is transhumanism and cyborgs uh, we've discussed transhumanism and cyborgs uh, quite a bit here on stuff to blow your mind and uh and just to remind everybody the, the two real linchpins for our conversations about cyborgs, uh, as well as just sort of the the roots of of the the idea itself, come down to two things. So we have a 1960 paper, uh, Cyborgs in Space, by Manfred E. Kleins and Nathan S. Klein. This is a pivotal work of futurism that coined the word cyborg and explored the, the necessary transformation of Homo sapiens for life beyond Earth. Yeah, we have a whole episode that we did last year about uh, this, but also just like this sort of philosophy of cyborgism in general. And then I also wrote something that's on our site that is about the superhero cyborg oh, yes. that's about to appear in all these DC movies and uh, how hopefully some of this uh, cyborg philosophy translates into that somehow. The other big piece that we talk about uh, in these episodes is Donna J. Haraway's 1985 essay, The Cyborg Manifesto. And this centers around the ideological cyborg identity. So we're talking about the realization that personal identity can itself be an intentional hybrid status that's unbound by the didactic expectations of the past. Now, I think when we, we, we take both of these into account and we look at Giger's work, uh, you know, we can recognize elements uh, uh, present. Uh, and his work resonates with, with so many of the concerns of, tw- of 20th century post-war existence. Flesh and machine become intertwined, but not in a way that feels encouraging. There's a sense of, uh, of parasitism with breathing tubes shoved into faces, bodies seemingly mutilated by the robotic hybridization. And at the same time, Giger's work is is unflinching in its sexuality. So there's such a, a as, as we discussed earlier, there's such a melding of individual and identity in his work. It's not always easy to, to pinpoint, but you certainly run across images where entities are absorbed by this category confusion, or there seems to be some sort of hybridization of gender. Um, 
And more often than not, one sees a masculine figure and a female figure seemingly copulating, but also becoming one in a way that confuses confuses whose parts are whose. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Not and not to mention too, like the, he sort of applies the issues of modern mass production oh, to yeah. biology and sexuality. Yeah, and there's a there's a paper uh, that I ran across that explores this a bit. This is a, a paper by Elizabeth uh, Margetha Borst, and it's her PhD uh, in philosophy thesis at the University of Waikato, Hamilton, New Zealand. And, it, and she explores a number of different cyborg artists, including Giger. So she points out that in looking at cyborgs in art, first of all, you have to consider Giger because she says, quote, there were fewer artists creating cyborg or interface artworks in the 1970s comparable to today. Yeah, and she specifically mentions the cyborgs are biomechanical babies that are in one of his pieces called Birth Machine. Uh, she's pretty focused on it. It has themes of birth and death and production, as we've already mentioned earlier. But it's this production line of cyborg babies that are being loaded into a gun like yeah. bullets. Uh, and there's a lot to unpack there about the human condition. She also cites Eric Gelber as suggesting that this is a symbol of humanity's increasing coexistence with technology and that our self-destructive nature and our incessant desire to procreate is what's leading to overpopulation and environmental chaos. I'd also add war and violence to that list, especially when you note that the cyborg babies in Giger's work have their own little guns. And then I wonder, well, what kind of bullets are in those? Are they tinier little cyborg babies? Huh. Yeah, I saw a quote where Giger said that the, part of the idea behind that work was he kind of viewed, he said he kind of viewed babies as a clean slate. Mm. Um which, uh, you know, that, that kind of runs counter to what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. But, uh, but, but still, he was saying that even if you look at a, at a child as this fresh, uh, you know, untarnished soul, it's still going to become something that's a part of a perhaps a negative and, and destructive world. Yeah, well, and then that leads into his work with Death Machine. Death Machine is another series he did, and Death Machine 1 is his homage to the synthesis of life and death with Machine acting as mediator. This is about the encroachment of technology and production on the birthing process. It, this time, rather than it being, you know, a machine of babies, it's a machine that connects to a birthing woman taking over over the entire biological processes in a very factory-like manner. Mm -hmm. and this is when I realized that there's something inherently Marxist about his stuff that's criticizing the sort of capitalistic mass production of life. Yeah. And there's one last piece in there, which is, it, this is connected, but it's a bronze sculpture that he did that many people have probably seen called the Birth Machine Baby. Follows similar themes. There's very, you know, dystopian stuff going on there. It's basically the, the same babies that were in the gun in the original painting, but they're in sculpted form. And as, uh, his second wife points this out in the documentary that if you look closely, the babies are all based on him. They have his facial structure. Now, one last thing I want to I want to point out. Uh, we we mentioned Moogie the cat, and if you if you go deep enough into Giger's work, you're gonna run across two pieces in particular. One titled Behemoth and one titled Minion. When I first saw one of these, I think on Facebook, just you know, a few years back, I I thought it was a fake. I thought somebody yeah, was me making too. a clever joke because they look like traditional Giger paintings, you know, biomechanoids and, you know, and, and the typical uh, category confusion flesh going on. And then in the foreground, a big kind of goofy looking cartoon cat. 
It's slightly zombified, like some of these uh, strange babies that he created, but it's just staring at you with big cartoon eyes. And yeah, I, I saw one of these for the first time, and I, th- and I was like, oh, well, that's clever. Somebody's yeah. having a little fun. But it turns out the person having a little fun was H.R. Giger. Yeah, yeah. This reminds me of um, Junji Ito, who I've talked about a couple times on the show before. He's this uh, Japanese manga artist who specializes in horror stuff. Oh, this is the Spiral guy? Yeah, he did Spirals, he did Gyo, um, he did Tomi. And uh, he has this book that's all about his cats, and it's 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 not meant to be a horror book because but because he's a horror writer and artist, he's writing about him and his wife bringing cats into their home and what it's like living with cats. But he his imagination sees these cats in these sort of like otherworldly forms. <laughs> it's fascinating. I love it. Um, and that brings me to a question that I'd like to ask the audience. Maybe I'm answering it for myself here. Who, and and you too, if you have an answer. But who has Giger's m- mantle passed on to? Like, who is taking on this transgressive art about the human condition? I, the, the best I could come up with was early Cronenberg, but you know, the stuff Cronenberg's working on right now isn't really like that. And so then I think Junji Ito. Yeah. If you look at his work, it's very similar. Yeah, it's hard to say. Like some of the artists that come to mind, like I instantly think of of older artists. Yeah, I think of uh, like Irving Norman, who I've mentioned on the the podcast before, who who had a very, you know, it's a different, very unique uh, aesthetic. But as far as just surrealism goes and dark surrealism, it, it had a similar vibe to Giger's work. But I can't, I'm not aware of anyone out there today who's really working with the same uh, energy but yeah. though obviously I would I would love to explore someone's work uh, if, if they are so certainly let us know yeah let us know send us some examples if you've seen them before um, I, I'm always looking for new stuff like this and I would love to know if there's something like this out there that I'm just missing out on now before we go here, we thought we'd just take a few minutes to chat with a friend of the show, um, E.C. Steiner, who's uh, worked with us before. He did. He recently did uh, uh, landing page illustrations for our book on uh, on, on flesh bound tomes. Yep. And uh, and he has also helped out with the monster science series in the past. Yeah, yeah. So he's built stuff for the show, uh, and he is. Honestly, the closest thing to H.R. Giger I've met in real life, and I know that it's a huge influence on him. So we wanted to speak to him more about sort of like the process and artistic influence of Giger. So let's talk to him briefly, and then we will end the episode. All right, we're welcoming uh, E.C. Steiner to the the show, uh, an artist, a friend of the show. Uh, he's uh, he's helped us out with a few things in the past, including props for Monster Science. Welcome, thanks for talking with us. Hey, thanks for having me today. I'm I'm real excited to come in and, and talk about uh, Giger's life and his work. Yeah, we go way back. Uh, we've known each other for God, like almost ten years now. I think it feels and, that and way. Worked on collaborative projects together, so it's cool to get you in here because while we were doing the Giger research, I immediately thought. Oh, we've got to talk to him. We've got to get mm-hmm. Steiner in here because he knows more about Giger than anybody I know. <laughs> and like Giger, you're an artist that works in uh, illustration, in paint, and in sculpture. So you're 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 working in all this different kind of media, very similar to him. And I think that's critical too because when you look at Giger's uh, peers and his his influences, they're transdisciplinary artists as well. They're not blocked in to just oh I just do painting or I just do sculpture. They they're truly artists in the sense that they're going to use 
whatever tools and uh, media they have available to convey that vision as as fully as possible. So let's talk about, uh, yeah, actually, like his influence on you, how it impacted you, uh, how it led to the kind of art that you make. And then I'm also really curious on what his influences are. Yeah. Like, what's the through line? Because sure. this is an area we didn't uh, we didn't really discuss. And, and I think this is this is great because um, when you look at his influences, and I, I think the the key distinction to make between influence and inspiration is the inspiration is it's the gas in the engine. It's it's what's lit the fire for you to go out and create something. Where influence is these little fingerprints all over your work. Where if you tell someone, hey, I, I really like this guy's work, or I've I've really grown up on on this guy's approach to creating things. You can then look at my work, look at that individual's work, and draw very clear lines. Um, and, and in terms of, of Giger, um, my kind of love affair with, with Hans Rudi uh, is really at a, at a point where it's, it was more patronage. Um, I would buy his prints. I would mm-hmm. purchase his books. I would go see films that he uh, collaborated in or had some part in or, or were inspired by what he was doing. Um, but I made a very... Um, real decision in my own work to avoid developing a Giger-esque approach because uh, you've seen it yourself. You can go online, you can type you know, Giger into a Google image search and not only find his works, but works of other artists that are rooted in his style and his approach, either through his, uh, his applications or just the kind of biomechanical black flag that he stamped into his uh, creative domain. Yeah, so I would say, like, it seems like, and we talked about this briefly on the show, but that, like, there's this um, affinity for Giger that rose up through sort of, like, the dark art and the goth scenes in the 80s and 90s. And I imagine, given what I know about other art scenes, that there's plenty of Giger imitators out there. Oh, absolutely. There there are artists who've made 15, 20-year careers uh, replicating that kind of biomechanical style. And you, you especially see it in, in the tattoo community, how they've really uh, kind of grabbed onto uh, that biomechanical style. And I often wonder if it's because Giger so often worked with Airbrush and he, he uh, airbrushed his, uh, his muse, uh, Lee. Yeah. He, uh, you know, I know we've all seen those photos of where mm-hmm. he airbrushed Debbie Harry uh, in the right. 1980s. Um, it's just his application applies so well to the human form. And then wanting to take that and apply it to yourself it's just a very easy line to draw um from one to the next but uh, yeah there's definitely an affinity there um both i think from the uh, the visual themes that he, he grabs onto his kind of personal iconography that translates very well in anyone who's interested in the, in the occult or in interested in kind of dark uh, visions you obviously see through his techniques he uses a lot of bone imagery he uses a lot of um kind of uh, uh mutagenic elements that uh, harken to a very kind of dystopian uh, post-human future uh, of sorts yeah. so uh when you think about the um Who's going to be attracted to it? It's it's not just people from those communities, but it's anyone who has just an appeal for seeing something that's that's off putting. Um, for me personally, what I really enjoy about his work and what I find uh, fascinating, especially in this time period that we're in, where we're talking about transhumanism and posthumanism and looking at kind of dystopian futures, is that um, his work really appeals to different aspects of of 
our, our culture. If you have, if you're a deep seated, uh, very religious individual, you may find a sense of, uh, existential terror in his work because he grabs so heavily on, uh, so maybe satanic imagery or mm-hmm. occult uh, symbolism. Yeah. Um, if you look at what he's done with, um, uh, kind of just the the blending, morphing, melding of of two or more figures. If you have a fear of uh, maybe body horror, something like you're afraid of an autoimmune disease or or cancer or something else, to see something like that could create a lot of psychological terror. So there's this great um, element to his work where it both appeals and repels people. Um, on different levels because of the symbolism, the approach to his subject matter, and just his application creating these vast worlds. And this is something that, that we talked a little, little bit about in the, the episode, is that you'll have an individual piece of his that will <laughs> inspire all of these these feelings in you, or at least they do in me, where it's like, oh, well, when I focus on this detail, yeah, that's 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 awesome, that's beautiful, I can get behind that idea. This section of this uh, triptych uh, troubles me more. It makes me ask a lot of questions. And, uh, and, and so you, you get a, I feel like you get a lot of category confusion out of his work. And, uh, above all, I, I always found his work very, very challenging compared to certainly other, you know, especially the sort of sci-fi and fantasy artists that are thrown into the same rough categorization. Absolutely. In fact, I think what's, what's so valuable about his work is here is a guy who went to school to study architecture and interior design. Mm-hmm. So you look at his work and you're not just dealing with, with subjects, you're not just looking at portraiture. You're looking at completely self-contained environments that give you a glimpse of this other other world. It's it's a window, it's a threshold, it's a portal into something beyond. And I think that makes his work so immersive and accessible because it's not just these these, these concept art uh, drawings that give you a hint of what's there. He's fully enveloping you in his vision. Um, and you, again, with his design background, you see how, um, through his, his sculptural techniques, his design techniques, that he's taken those images and then pulled them into a physical space where they occupy a three-dimensional space. Yeah. You can interact with them. You can sit in them. I think that's why, uh, the Giger Bar had such an appeal for people, mm-hmm. why his museum is, is, is such a great, you know, kind of destination stop on a European tour is because you're not just seeing something through the safety of uh, a two-dimensional plane. You are now able to circle it and interact with it and feel as if it's it's coming into your world. It's crossing that threshold. And um, some of that, that wonder and uh, fear that he can create in his work is now coming at you in a, in a different way. So this is actually like one of the reasons why we wanted you to come in and talk to us is that you understand the process of what he was doing way more than us. And one of the things I was astonished by was watching him work with airbrush and documentaries because he didn't do any underdrawings. And it's just, to me, as like a sort of just like fledgling artist, it's it's insane watching him come up with this just like meticulous anatomy just with this like the loosest of possible tools just going over and over and over again with it until it's just refined perfectly and so i'd like you know can you speak to that and and also speak to you know just his process in general of also like you know 2d to 3d work sure well i i think again what's what's wonderful about his background is you know he goes to the the university to study architecture and, and interior design and you know when you're presenting those those architectural sketches, those design sketches, you have to be meticulous. The draftsmanship quality of that really comes out. And when you look at his early work, certainly in like the 1960s, mid-60s, 
it's a lot of, of pen and ink. Uh, again, very well rendered, immaculate lines, just exciting work. So when you look at him, and I, I again, I have in my studio, I have a photo of him where he's working and he's just right there going right on the canvas with an airbrush. Um, I think the training and the skill that he had going into that allowed him to just look at a blank canvas, not as something to be afraid of and figure out, oh, gee, where am I going to start with this? But actually, he could already see, I'm putting lines here, I'm putting lines here, I'm going to deepen this area, I'm going to go in and shade. So it's, again, a very organic process, which, again, helps contribute to his very organic results, where um, it's it's not all hard edges. Even yeah. some of his hard edges seem very round, almost like uh, the, the you know, kind of like the thorax of a bug or a carapace of, of some kind of exoskeleton creatures we see in, you know, certainly his later work. But um, in terms of his process, I, I truly believe it was just his um, his comfort and his command of what he wanted to do and the techniques he had at his disposal that he knew, when I put this line down here, I mean it to be there. It's yeah. supposed to be there. I trust it's going to it's gonna work with where I'm going with this. So he could just dive right in and go to town. So tell us a little bit about Giger's influences. Sure. Um, what's, what's fascinating about Giger's influences, and I, as I, I mentioned earlier, you can find the fingerprint of his, his peers, his friends, uh, the artists that he looked to as inspirators as well as supporters in his work and when you when you see their work and just you know I'm going to give you some names of people who really impacted what he did when you do for instance a google image search or you you find a book of their work and you flip through it you're going to see proto giger work in those in those drawings and those paintings and those sculptures uh the first one that comes to mind uh is a gentleman by the name of Dado uh and I can't even pronounce his uh, Yugoslavian name so I I'm not going to uh, butcher that um but was uh, what critical about him was that he created these beautiful, deformed uh, beings. Uh, and that's when you look at it, you clearly see some of those kind of blending, melded uh, uh, creatures or, or beings that uh, Giger created. There's such a parallel there. And you can almost see Giger being very um, uh, enamored with how he approached the, his, his designs of these figures and began playing with that in his own work. And again, filtering that through his creative prism. So you're not just seeing this, these kinds of abstract, surreal figures, but beings that exist in his, his world and his vision. And so they start taking on more of those, those bony, organic, biomechanical elements while still hearkening back to kind of Dotto's approach and style. Uh, someone else that I, I, you really see in his work is Ernst F- uh, F- Fuchs, who is a, um, uh, an amazing, uh, Austrian, um, draftsman, uh, painter, um, printmaker, sculptor. Again, one of these, these individuals who just wasn't bound into one creative box. Um, and what's fascinating about, uh, Ernst's influence on, uh, Hans Rudy's work is the way he presents his his women. As you know, uh, Giger's uh, women, uh, t- even the, the pieces he did with uh, with his uh, Muse Lee, yeah. um, they're always presented in these very almost serene, uh, commanding, regal, uh, sensual and alluring um, compositions. Sometimes they're elongated and leaning. Sometimes they're reclining. Sometimes they're looking at you head on. And when you look at Ernst's work and you look at how he approached his female subjects, 
it's almost as if you're looking at an, an, an underdrawing for one of um, Giger's paintings because you can see right away where, ah, now we start adding all of the biomechanical elements on top of this. Um, it's just, it's such a very clear fingerprint on how Giger approached his, uh, his more uh, feminine subject matter. Uh, someone else that's, that's really important to talk about is uh, a guy by the name of uh, Austin Osmond Spare, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly. Um, he was an artist who really embraced kind of these occult themes and symbolism and uh, building on the psychology that, a, that a, an artwork can have. And I think Giger really pulled from that when you look at some of his um, – uh, some of the work that begins to reach out more into very clear occult realms. You see the repetition of symbols. You see the repetition of, of certain uh, visual elements that create a visual language that kind of deepen his vision, his world that he's trying to share with you, uh, but also challenge you, as I, I know you guys have already touched on some of the psychological elements of his work. But again, that all plays into this. You know, How do you apply uh, kind of esoteric themes to your work? So it's not just disposable pop culture. There are clear, timeless messages in this work that resonate, which again goes back to why I think when we talk about things that are Giger-esque, they are ultimately always going to be derivative and in some ways inferior because they lack the the message of the work. They're just replicating the artifice. I mean, anyone can sit down with an airbrush or with clay and create these wondrous biomechanical creatures, but they're lacking the very personal occult themes and uh, kind of the secret messages that Giger was folding into his work, both to, to challenge individuals, but as well as maybe introduce them to things that were a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, because when I think of, of of stuff that's derivative of Giger, it is kind of like someone saying, oh, well, these are the parts of this painting that I like and don't have any issues with that, you know, that don't challenge me too much. I'm going to take those, boil those down into, uh, into, into this work. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the things that I've noticed, and we talked about this in the episode, is that there's these really broad themes of identification through Giger's work that even if you look at it and it and it seems repulsive to you, you know, they're themes that every human being can identify with birth, death, sex, biology, right? All of these things. And what I'm trying to think of is somebody today who's working with broad themes like that, but is also transgressive in the way that Giger was in that, like you look at their work and you go, "Oof, I, I don't feel like I'm supposed to be looking at this. And yet it has a broad appeal. Is there anybody you can think of? The best I could come up with was Junji Ito in the episode. Yeah. Junji Ito is great. Um, he he definitely exists in his in his own again his own visual realm. Yeah. He's created it. He's expanding it with every release. Um, I it's it's very hard to point to someone in particular who has the same resonance that that Giger has right now, or even anyone who's come before him. Um, because it, uh, with the unfortunate time period that we in, we're losing a lot of those very strong talents who set a, a tone and a pace for not just uh, you know, pop art or fantasy art or dark art, but for the art world. Um, and I think today, especially when you look at the landscape, so much of art seems to be made for quick digestion. Yeah. It's I'm I'm going for social media likes, so I'm gonna do something that's derivative of of 
someone else's work or uh, Stranger a, Things fan art. Stranger Things fan <laughs> art. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> how many how many waffles and Elevens can we see online? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, My Instagram's full of that stuff. Exactly. Uh, and again, there, there's nothing wrong with that. But the artist has to accept the fact that why I'm doing this is I want to appropriate the momentum of some other property yeah, and use that cultural currency it has to perhaps elevate my own uh, my own role. Uh, unfortunately, though, and ultimately, that's disposable. Are there people who get uh, work from doing fan art, from doing derivative work? Absolutely. But are they going to have a timelessness that someone like Giger, like Mobius, um, you think about even you know Jordowski, who has such an important role for bringing all these guys together. Yep. And then from that, even though that project failed, and we're, again we're talking about his his Dune project, um, what came out of it? Alien, well, Alien, mm-hmm. uh, some of Blade Runner, um, certainly some of David Lynch's Dune. But right. you think about in terms of contemporary film, mm-hmm. Prometheus. Yeah. Because Ridley Scott went back to some of those early Dune concepts and said. We need to put these in in this film because they fit, and I believe one of them is like this this giant Harkonnen, yeah. um, you know, kind of dome that made an appearance in the film. And again, it's it's a great way of looking at someone who has such a fingerprint on that film. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, there's a great documentary I think you can find like YouTube about the making of Aliens. And what surprised me was James Cameron's reaction to questions about you know. Giger's involvement. Oh no 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 no. He we we didn't bring him in on this. Yeah. I mean, it's his design, but we we want to go in another direction. We want to change things, but you can't because his fingerprint is so strong. Oh yeah, um, totally. And and Scott even has like recognized that now that he's back on that franchise, like Prometheus and uh, uh, Alien Covenant both have Giger back front and center. In fact, I think in Prometheus, don't they have that big alien mural that they he originally do, the kind designed? Of hieroglyphic. Yeah. Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, and I, I under, from my understanding is that there's similar stuff that's supposed to be in Covenant. So. Yeah, Moogie. I'm hoping the Moogie murals. Uh, <laughs> this is a good place for us to end. So yeah, so Moogie has a huge influence on Giger. He has three Moogies throughout the course of his life. Yes. There are three cats with the same name. Uh, so what about you? I know you have two cats, so are you uh, planning to uh, just have cats throughout the rest of your life and name them with various numerals after them? Uh, you know, that, that's probably a, a great idea. Um, just Draco 1, Moxie 5. Um, I, I can admit, though, that when you create ta- uh, what they call plastic arts, a sculpture yeah. or uh, you know something where it's tactile, and you have cats, every time you sell a, a work of art or you take on a commission – your client is ultimately going to get something that is just filled with cat hair. <laughs> it's, it's in there. You try to cover it up. Oh, that's just veins, or I, you know, that's just a, a stray hair. You know, it's you know, it'll be fine. But um, I don't know. There's something fascinating about artists and cats too. Every um, Harkonnen chair comes with one hair from Moogie. <laughs> I kept wondering, watching the Dark Star documentary, it's like how how is Moogie not just scratching the hell out of everything? Like my cat, if I had artwork sitting around on the, uh, you know, touching the floor, and granted, some of this was wood and sculpture and all, but I would just think, oh, my cat would just tear it to pieces. You know what's fascinating is um, I I used to let my cats in, in my studio originally. And I would find that when they want attention, that's when I would start seeing sculptures on the floor, mm-hmm. arms are blown off, legs are, are shattered. Um, so I would, would keep them out. Uh, but now, certainly, 
um, in, in my home where I have my studio, they'll come in and I, I'm more or less just like a, a recliner or a, a bed. Um, one will get in a chair next to me. The other has to sit in my lap while I work. Um, I've developed an entire kind of postural approach to how <laughs> I create so that I'm not, you know, bumping their heads or unsettling their dreams. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it's fascinating how, uh, and you certainly see with with Giger, he has a, a strong affinity for cats, and also um, something else to really to look at is is his home. Um, I know in, in your research you may have touched this already. Uh, early on, he was living in squalor. It was like he went from one condemned building to the next, and then when he has this very kind of fortuitous moment of receiving an inheritance and buying a house. Um, I think a lot changed for him in that moment because now he has a creative base of operations. Um, he doesn't have to worry about maybe being transient in another week or so when they tear down the building. Um, and I think maybe some of that that pressure, that environmental pressure, was playing onto his work and certainly driving his relationship with Lee together. Uh, and then when he got stable, he had a foundation. He had his 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 fortress of, of creativity. Um that's when things really change with his work. I think. I think he. There was a sense of permanence. There's a think of this is my my entire studio. Uh, and when you look at the, the Dark Star documentary, you look at that house, and it is just standing room only because mm-hmm. the art lives there. He just kind of lives around it. And when you've got art in your sinks and in your bathtubs and um, you know folded up behind you know dinner tables and art stacked on top of art on top of art, it's you really get a sense that that was his his creative palace. And he uh, well even his his ghost train in the backyard. Yeah. And you go out back and that's not a normal patio setup for a lot of people. Maybe a couple chairs and a, a fire pit. Not at Giger's house. So. So thanks for being with us today. Uh, where can people find your art online? Where can they find, you know, follow you, see the stuff that you're working on? Oh, great. Well, um, again, thank you for having me here today. Uh, I love talking about Giger. Um, he's, he's such a, an, an important uh, influence on my own work and uh, certainly early on in, in trying to, you know, find my own creative path and, and my own voice and, and, and not just replicate what he's done. Uh, but if anyone's interested in taking a look at what I've done, uh, you can find me online at uh, caskyglass.com. Uh, that's my, my main website that I'm, I'm going through and doing some uh, alterations with right now. But from there, you can link off to my social media account, uh, my store where you can, you know, take a look at some of the, uh, the small artworks that I have available for sale and um, connect with me there. Because, uh, uh, of course, I want to connect with other Giger fans and anyone who's interested in dark art and you know, kind of uh, promote the scene as best I can. Yeah, and if you're a fan of our show and you've seen some of the video stuff that we've done, especially Monster Science, you're going to want to check this stuff out. Because the Cyclops head that shows up in Monster Science, mm-hmm. that's Steiner. Also the Cthulhu. Yeah, the Cthulhu is in most of the How Stuff Works now. It, that's true, yeah. It's in our now studio as well. So a lot of good stuff. Go check it out. Well, thanks for uh, coming in, chatting with us, discussing Giger. And uh, we'll include links to uh, to those websites we mentioned on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. All right, so there you have it. Thanks again to Eric Steiner for chatting with us there. And if you want to uh, check out some of the links we've been discussing here, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, go to the landing page. We'll include uh, some uh, some interesting gateways to uh, deeper, deeper explorations, including uh, Stanislav Grof's website, StanislavGrof.com, and uh, the H.R. Giger Museum itself, HRGigerMuseum.com. And if you want to get in touch with us and talk to us about Giger or other artists that you think are working in this realm, we're all over social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. 
them. Uh, or you could just write us the old-fashioned way, send an email, not a letter, uh, and that would be at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah, and I'd say there's a 90% chance we will do a trailer talk episode this Friday in which we look at the trailers for some of these Giga-related films we discussed, uh, and that'll take place on our Facebook page, and then later I'll upload it to YouTube. And as always, shoot us an email at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is... And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.